Okay, hello and welcome to episode 49 of Dano's Says So, brought to you by Trust Network as part of the Evergreen Podcast family. Today's guest, A.C. Thompson, is somebody I've interviewed before. It's been over a little over a year at this point. He is an award-winning investigative journalist and author. He is an on-screen correspondent for ProPublica PBS Frontline. His beat over the years has had him covering things like extraordinary rendition, which is essentially CIA kidnap and murder overseas, to paraphrase uh, my understanding of it. He's covered police shootings and murder in immediately post-Katrina New Orleans. The last couple of years, the way I would put it is that his beat has been the far right or the goings-on in the right-leaning part of the American political spectrum. Last year, his documentary, American Insurrection, put him front and center talking face-to-face with a lot of people involved in the Capitol riots, the invasion of the Capitol. This year, he very recently released Plot to Overthrow the Election. It is sort of an examination of the big lie at a think tank or strategy level, for lack of a better way to put it. Anyway, Mr. Adam Clay Thompson, thank you for doing this. Hey, I'm so glad to, to chat with you again. It's, uh, it's going to be interesting. So when you and I were talking before, and when we were doing a little bit of prep on this, I said the temptation would be to just do a linear blow by blow, by blow on the movie, which isn't what I want. But to really give people an idea of what you and your team do in Plot to Overthrow the Election and what the film really is, to me, you have to start bare minimum, which is sort of chronological with Interim County, Michigan, and what happened there. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting um, because basically you have this glitch in this little county in far northern Michigan, um, Antrim County. It's actually where one of my colleagues is from and where he got married. And the person that married him was the county clerk who oversaw the election there. And basically, to make it clear to folks, We have a very, very complex, technologically dependent election system in the U.S. that is run at basically the county level, often by underfunded offices and under-equipped officials. And so in November 2020, when Cheryl Guy, the Antrim County clerk, was running their election, which included um, the presidential vote, she and her team straight up messed up. They... Uh, had a problem with formatting, basically formatting the ballot and formatting the computer system they were using. And so they got the entirely wrong numbers. They got numbers in this Republican stronghold that should have been solidly Trump. The initial numbers were solidly Joe Biden. And by the next day, she had figured out what was wrong. Uh, They had brought in experts to help untangle this software uh, procedural sort of snafu. And, and they knew who was the correct victor in the presidential election and the other elections. But, and, and just to give one more level of detail, there was like, it was basically like there was a ballot issue, uh, like a referendum in some of the towns that had not been properly added into the, into the system. And that threw everything off. But Republican voters and activists in Michigan seized on this snafu and they said, oh, even though they got it right, eventually, it must have been part of some big plot to do something nefarious. And we're very, very angry because Trump is not going, has not been reelected. And this is our clue 
that there was some broader plot to rig the election. And it doesn't matter if eventually they, they got it right. This was like a clue to us that there was something untoward going on. And pretty soon what you saw was well-funded activists showing up in this little tiny town in, in Michigan to basically get a hold of the voting infrastructure there, the machines, access the machines, and try to um, extrapolate on their theories. And one of their big theories was, oh, these people are using Dominion voting systems machines. We're seeing Dominion voting systems machines in all these swing states that we thought should have gone for Trump. And this must be part of the scam. This must be part of the plot. These machines must be one of the mechanisms of stealing the election. This led to litigation, which is ongoing. It led to Donald Trump taking up this issue of Antrim County, Michigan, and the Dominion voting machines in many, many of his speeches, including words he said on January 6th. It became a huge cause on the right. And and in the same way that people in activist Republican circles believed that Antrim was a window into a broader conspiracy, Antrim became a sort of entry point for them to go around the country and spread their conspiratorial beliefs. So just for further further clarification, for anybody who hasn't seen it and who hasn't discussed this with you, we're looking at essentially human error. And human error and human error that in a very short window was corrected and accurately reported. I mean, very short, right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. But an audit or some semblance of an audit followed this conducted by outside parties? Yeah. So there were several things, you know, like there were multiple tallies of the vote by election officials. There was all kinds of checking and rechecking. But then what also happened was there was a disgruntled Republican voter from that county who found outside counsel, a team of quasi-investigators flew into Antrim County. They were funded by very wealthy outside sources. They went into the voting machines. They examined the digital, so-called digital, they made the digital forensics. They did what, what they would call a digital forensic examination. And they said, oh, look, there's all this evidence that this was, in fact, part of a attempt to disenfranchise the good people of northern Michigan. This was not harmless error. It was a reflection of these flawed machines that were basically made to be manipulated. And this ended up both as being a uh, this report, which was put together by a funded by by wealthy donors and put together by a tiny little sort of quasi security firm out of Dallas, Texas called Allied Security Operations Group. This report ended up both being used in the lawsuit, but also being used as sort of a blueprint for activists around the country to challenge the election results in their jurisdiction and to challenge the veracity and integrity of, of voting machines made by the, the Dominion company. 
So two things again. First off, did ASOG, which is, I guess the, it's an abbreviation for this allied group that you're talking about, did they have any justification, any court papers, any documentation, anything that really gave credence to them, they or these people who utilized them conducting an audit? Or was it just sort of a bulldoze in and say, hey, we're going to do this? Well, it sort of happened in two phases. So in November, operatives associated with ASOD flew into town and they visited the lowest level clerks, the, the township level clerks in that area who administer elections at the township level. Each township might have different candidates running, might have different uh, ballot items, right? And so they went to some of those folks and in one, at least in one case, got access to that clerk's voting machines. And there are pictures of them looking at the, the paper, the literal paper record that comes out of the machine and records what everyone does. So that was one piece of their quasi-forensic investigation, their so-called forensic investigation. When it came to the county clerk, who was responsible for all of the voting throughout the county, they got a court order as part of this ongoing lawsuit. And so they came again a second time in early December 2020 and accessed those machines under, under court supervision. And the report they put together days later was based on, on their examinations in both of those cases in November and December. And in the first case, without any sort of legal framework to get inside those machines, which then effectively rendered the machines um, no longer usable without a security update, <laughs> you know, like a, like a serious security update. It raises the question, uh, what little I know about ASOG, I, I learned watching you, but what was the, what, what would you say about the quality of this reporting and frankly, their ability or qualification to understand what they were auditing? I'm basically saying, you know, in the end of the day, first I'm asking you about their right to access, but then mm -hmm. I'm also sort of curious about the quality of the audit itself. Right. So in the first case, um, it is not clear, um, you know, they had no legal authority to look at the, the voting machines in the first wave that they when they went up there in November. They, there was no legal framework for them to do that, right? The second case, when they went in December, they did have a court order that was granted to them. And so that was a proper and appropriate thing that happened there. I, I would say all of the experts that we've spoken to about voting technology think that their report is profoundly flawed. That is a reflection of massive misapprehensions of both the technology and the process. And like, to be clear, um, this is a sort of arcane intersection of procedure and technology, right? Like you have lots of people in this country who are fairly fluent in um, computer security, but there are not a lot of people that understand the inner mechanics of voting and the sort of different processes for voting from township to township, county to county, state to state, and truly are qualified to dig into one of these machines and pinpoint the potential flaws. There just aren't that many of them. And these people were not. 
qualified, according to many of the experts that we have spoken to. When you talk to people that know that technology and they deal with it every day, they say these people at ASOG, they got the basic facts wrong, the basic facts. And, you know, their report was just profoundly, profoundly flawed. But that didn't keep it from becoming this touchstone, this um, key document on the right that said, hey, look, your um, fears about a stolen election are true. Here it is in Michigan. Look at this one county. This is a sign that the whole thing was rigged. Mm-hmm. And it spread all over the country. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about. I think where sort of talking points and strategy to do that come from, at least to my understanding. And that would be uh, Mr. Lynn Wood and his plantation, and things that occurred. I think, believe later the same month. We're talking Thanksgiving, twenty twenty. Right? Yeah, I mean, uh, such an interesting thing that I was thinking about is, you know, you said sort of at the think tank level, and it's mm-hmm. it's, it's a. In, A distinction I want to make here is this, is for many years, there has been a wing of the um, sort of Republican establishment that has been focused on voting issues. And at times they've had legitimate uh, gripes about certain aspects of voting procedures in different places. At times they've they've had less legitimate arguments to make. That's one sort of piece here. The other piece that ha- that we're talking about springs up really around Trumpism and around this election. And it's much more grassroots. It's not institutional. And it's basically people, a relatively small group of people with a lot of money and the backing of a handful of very wealthy individuals who can then sort of build on this foundation that the think tanks have developed over the years and go off into wilder and wilder and wilder conspiracy theories. So the group that really animates the activism around arguing that there's election fraud in 2020, this is this sort of new grassroots groups. And this is funded by people like Mike Lindell who is the CEO of the MyPillow company, which is a company that advertised for many years, really religiously on um, uh, Fox News constantly. It's folks like Patrick Byrne, who is the CEO of Overstock.com for many years, and they're bankrolling this activism. And then the people who are involved in the activism, some of them are people like the employees and executives at Allied Security Operations Group, ASOG. Some of them are attorneys like Lynn Wood, who's based in South Carolina, and um, Sydney Powell has become pretty infamous for her Kraken lawsuits. Um, And then others are these sort of freelance computer nerds who are like, dude, this is what happened. I'm telling you, this is the deal. And it's really this sort of coalition of different activists with different skill sets who are able to do the work they're doing because there is money behind it. Perception, and the reason I asked you about Linwood, and I don't know how it's pronounced, if I was reading about the Tomatli plantation or whatever it is, is that I perceive that being, and this is a perception, that's why why I'm interviewing you, 
that that's essentially where Antrim County has talking points boiled boiled down or was boiled down. It's where I see the Dominion as a centerpiece coming into focus, or at least one meeting of recognizable personalities where I see that. Yeah. So the people at Linwood's Tamatley Plantation, they gather there after the election in 2020 in November. And it's sort of a nerve center for this stop the election, overturn the vote activism. And he's got attorneys there like Sidney Powell. He's got the former general, Mike Flynn. He's got a bunch of techies there. Um, Patrick Byrne is there for a minute. And they're all in contact with the, the ASOG group out of Texas. And they're comparing notes and trading information and developing strategies together. And so that's how that all works. And when ASOG, working with funding from Patrick Byrne and coordination with this group on the plantation, they get access to these machines. It's like, oh, that's our, you know, that's our first um, sort of win. We can see inside these and we can see that there was fraud and, and we're going to keep moving from state to state in contested race to contested race from here. Well, two things uh, that I, I could uh, like to hear you flesh out. This was not secretive in the sense that people present acknowledge having been present for the for sort of these get-togethers and over this Thanksgiving period. And I mean, there's photography of Flynn there. Right, right. So people, yeah, people are generally generally acknowledged that they were there and that they were part of these this wave of um, activism. Okay, and, and then very specifically regarding Dominion and how to attack on the Dominion issue or use the Dominion as a linchpin. In the film, you mentioned, is it injunction lists? Or it's, yeah. it's, where, it's, where, it's where very specific pieces of election machinery are listed or itemized. And then that's presented in multiple cases across the country in yeah. very linear fashion, right? Yeah, so it's like this, this group, um, ASOG and the plantation group, they developed this sort of list of like, this is the equipment we need to go get. This is like what we need to get court orders to go in and get and to then examine. And like, to be clear, there's a case out of Colorado where people in this circle allegedly went into a county clerk's office and basically stole voting machines, um, you know, without any kind of court order. You know, so this, this plan went pretty crazy in a lot of ways, but you can sort of see the wave of lawsuits that comes after this group gathers in November, 2020 in this South Carolina plantation, that part of what they're doing here is it's not just litigation, it's trying to get access to this technology because there's this belief that like, if we see the inside of the technology, we'll know how the scam is being run. Have they come up with much? Like I should be clear that a huge number of people that I've interviewed for the, the plot to overturn the election uh, had gotten cease and desist letters from Dominion voting systems because Dominion voting systems made what I would say is a quite compelling case that these people were saying in, insanely libelous and defamatory and false things about their technology. And I think the general expectation is that Dominion voting systems is going to prevail in the many um, defamation lawsuits that it has brought against people promulgating 
clearly false conspiracy theories about its technology. So that's a long way of saying, no, I don't think that they came up with much of anything. What did happen, though, is because you're talking about complicated technology and stuff that you and I are not familiar with. It's pretty easy to take a few snapshots of that technology and say, look, I'm a computer guy and this must be evidence that there's something untoward going on here. Look, exhibit B, more evidence that something untoward is going on. Exhibit C. And so the fact that all the experts say, look, there's no there there doesn't really matter. The narrative that's been assembled by this so-called digital forensic experts that have looked at this stuff on the on the Republican side has been enough, I think, to sway vast numbers of voters that there was some sort of fraud. And that in particular, that the Dominion voting machines were part of that fraud. You know, well, I, would, I would I should also say that, like I said before, the credentials of many of these so-called techies are, are in dispute or not particularly impressive. ASOG is an empty hangar, is it not? Never had a staff of more than 10. Didn't appear to. In the film, we interviewed Josh Merritt, who was one of the key promulgators of the, the Dominion voting conspiracy, right? And Josh is a very nice guy. I, I found him to be a lovely person to chat with. It, it um, struck me as as weird space to be in because <laughs> well, well, because of the work that he's done. And then the way you appeared to interact, it made me think again a lot about how what you do is knowledge. What it seems, in other words, I just picture a life of extended confrontation. And in some cases, these people are a bit of a surprise. Yeah, I mean, like, look, Josh is a very nice guy. He's like 100% wrong on everything that he has come to believe about the 2020 election. Mm -hmm. And when he starts talking to you about it, it becomes very clear very quickly, even to me, who is not a computer expert, that he's profoundly wrong. And that, you know, his affidavit about Dominion voting machines and his supposed expertise being baked into a bunch of these lawsuits um, was, not a good, was not a good thing at all, you know. Um, but, that, you know, at the same time, like I said, Compared to many of the people that I've dealt with, he's a quite nice and genial person. I just think he's um, he's also a conspiracy theorist who is super into New World Order conspiracy theories. And his favorite book is one of his favorite books is Behold a Pale Horse, which is sort of a Bible of modern conspiracy theory. It's an interesting thing. And where I want to go in the second half of this chance to talk to you sort of goes to that space and wants to ask you more about your personal experiences. There is something I wanted to share with you about the film that I'm, I don't know whether you would expect to hear from me or not. And there is something that occurs late in the film that I wanted to ask you about because I think it illustrates incredibly well what, at least in my opinion, is going on here. First thing I wanted to tell you is that much to my discomfort, the film made it easier for me to, if not empathize, to understand and maybe lay softer judgment on people who believe there was election. Mm. Yeah, it, it put more meat on the bones of the theory for me, which, mm. you know, I would much rather sit in a lofty, a hard left position and just flip them off. But mm. I started to get where it comes from and how it could grow between one's ears to represent something different than it does to me. 
And that was a surprise, but I think that is the offshoot of detailed reporting. The thing I wanted to talk about later in the film that I think illustrates a lot of what you've just explained to me is what happens in Maricopa County. And mm-hmm. that is that there's this big showdown over this immense audit in Arizona and people like Flynn and Byrne, they're all hanging their hats on. When the findings of that audit are presented to the public, it was essentially an oral shell game, was it not? I mean, you were there. So the first thing I should say is, you know, with all of, all of this work, people get uncomfortable because I say, look, I, I want to empathize with the people in these films as much as possible and understand them. And a lot of times people get bent about that. And they say, like, what are you doing? You're giving a platform to these people, blah, 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 blah. And my my sort of feeling is, like, people have very intense beliefs around, particularly around the election. I'm interested to hear how they came to those intense beliefs and to try to better understand them. And I don't agree with them. I can assess the evidence and say, oh, these people are absolutely wrong. But I want to understand like how they get there. And I want to treat them with respect when I do that. And, and believe me, sometimes that can be hard. I would say, even with the people who are further on the extremist scale, like some of those people, um, there are some of those people that my work is going to be all about exposing their criminal activity and horrific acts. But with some of those people who have not been directly involved in horrible acts, it may be slightly different and it may be trying to use them as a vehicle to understand how people become radicalized and how this culture is creating uh, wave after wave of radicalized people. So there's a a few things going on in these films and, and sometimes people get bent about that. I would also say like one more thing I should say is that, you know, I think there's a lot more pushback in a lot of these interviews that's not in the film that you don't end up seeing that I kind of wish was in the film a lot more challenging some of some of the conspiracy theorists and there's plenty of that just there's not a ton of it in the film you know and these are collaborative decisions that get made that way and I'm one voice in the room about you know what should go in and what shouldn't but you're asking about Maricopa County and what happens there and how the sort of the the template that starts in Michigan moves over to Arizona and becomes this much bigger deal. My perception is, though, that there was a lot of big talk about this is where it all begins. And if, it, you know, and if this goes our way or this goes the way it should, or if the truth is borne out here, you know, then we're off to the races. And if not, we'll shut up, we'll pack up and go home. But what actually happened is that an audit went one way and was presented. I would see the Arizona so-called audit document mm-hmm. as being a, a microcosm of media and politics in America. And this is why. I'm in Phoenix, Arizona in late 2021 when the audit is about to drop in September 2021. And it comes out, the mainstream and legacy media outlets report one thing and they report, hey, look, the long delayed crazy audit finally came out and it shows that actually Joe Biden got more votes in Maricopa County than than initially thought. And that was like one way to understand that. The entire rest of the document 
is one insinuation after another that the election was profoundly flawed, that it was corrupt on many different levels, and that those results couldn't be trusted. And so right-wing media paid attention to that second part of the audit. That was what was interesting to them. That's what they highlighted. And so you could have two Americas looking at the same document and divining entirely different things from it. It really is a reflection in a single instance of, of, this of where this country is at. So when I'm in Arizona and the Senate, state Senate is about to have its hearings on this and the documents just come out, the reports just come out, all the Trumpists are sort of pinning their hopes that on this document and that it will reverse the course of the election and somehow restore the great leader to power. And then they see these local TV reports and these local news reports and these national news reports. And all, it's, all they're doing is, is reciting that top line. Oh, actually, Joe Biden got more votes, according to the tally. And what I could see was the activists start threatening the local news immediately over that. I was with a local TV news reporter who told me at 11.30 that morning, she'd been threatened with death three times. And people are screaming at me. People are yelling at me. Um, people are harassing me because they, I'm in this group of media uh, reporters. And their perception is that you guys are all in on this, this like vast conspiracy to tank the election. And you're all working in concert with the globalists and whoever else to dethrone Trump. And the way you're reporting on this report is further proof of that to me. Interesting. It's I remember, you know, my own my own slip is showing here. My own bias is showing because what I remember about that prior to seeing seeing those results visited again in the documentary is I remember the night it came out. And I remember I remember Maddow bashing hmm. cyber ninjas or whatever they were called from here. I would say there's a great deal more to the documentary and a great deal more depth in everything that we've discussed here. And I urge people to track it down wherever they can. It's streaming. It's streaming on PBS, you know, through all sorts of different uh, posts. But it is it is a must see. And rather than try and steal any more of your thunder by having you tell the tale here, I would direct them that way. What I do want to do is ask you what this work is like ask you about some very specific situations regarding before we do that i should just sure. say one more one more caveat which absolutely is that, which is that um though that document was interpreted very different ways by different populaces the claims that the election were in maricopa county was massively fraudulent and two me two million people were engaged in a fraudulent election those are all bogus and they have been rebutted very effectively, sure. frankly, by Republic, local Republican officials in that county. So I just want to make that clear. One of the more uncomfortable situations politically on the right has got to be when Republican state officials have to defend the integrity of their position, regardless of what's coming from the talking heads. To be clear, many of the people that I've met in recent years who have been terrorized were Republican officials who were terrorized by other Republicans. And I mean, I mean, like, seriously, like threatened with death, fleeing their homes, going into hiding. You know, that that is a that's a real thing. A thing that's come up in more than one of our conversations and that I'm not going to revisit here, but it informs the way I'm going to ask you some of these questions is you were the guy who put it in my head a long time ago that agenda has no place in reporting or the mm -hmm. good reporting. You know, the questions are asked about agenda and they're there. 
received neutrally and analytically, and that if agenda exists in reporting, it's a choice. Well, I picture you spending the last few years swimming in waters I would find extremely uncomfortable mm. and spending a lot of time in direct contact with people who, at least as I knew you as a younger man, you have almost nothing in common. Mm. Okay. And a very specific example that I want to ask you about is Patrick Byrne. So first, for the people who don't know, could you tell them who Patrick Byrne is in a little bit greater detail? Yeah, so Patrick Byrne is the former CEO of Overstock.com. He was uh, ran that company for many, many years. He made a vast fortune running that company. He has stepped down from it in the last few years, and it's hard to gauge exactly how wealthy he is, but I know when I've met with him, he's always flying on a private plane and is quite open about spending millions and millions of dollars to try to reverse the 2020 election. And the plane, the team that flew into Antrim County immediately following the election? He paid for a large chunk of the Maricopa County audit, you know, which is remarkable. He is paying for this sort of election fraud, conspiracy activism in many, many different places. And correct me if I'm wrong, but he stepped down from Overstock.com under rather colorful allegations, yes? Yeah, Patrick was involved with a Russian spy, romantically involved with a Russian spy. And for him, like when he starts discussing the 2020 election, a lot of times his theories about that actually tie back to his his involvement with this Russian spy. And that ends up being part of the the plot. The Chinese are involved, earlier administrations in the U.S. are involved, the Russian, you know, there's all this kind of crazy stuff going on when he starts talking about election fraud conspiracies. But yeah, that's part of it in his mind. You basically rode shotgun with him to... What is it? Reawaken America? Reawaken America, yeah. Okay, which was a which was kind of what a speaking tour for for several for several people at that end of the spectrum. Um, yeah. First off, how in the name of God did that happen? Like literally, how does one secure that interview in that space? And then I really want to know what it's like. Right. So we hung out with him in Arizona at an event in Arizona, and there were about three thousand plus people gathered at a mega church. I believe it was in Scottsdale, Arizona there. And we got access to Patrick through one of my colleagues on this film, Sam Black, who really was the point person to reach out to him and did the good work of convincing Patrick to hang out with us and talk to us. Um, so I can't take credit for that. But hanging out, and, and I should be also say, you know, other news crews were ejected from the mega church who were trying to to document it while we were there. So we felt lucky or something to be, to be able to. <laughs> lucky, to, guilty, to something. Yeah. Uh, what was that like? Okay, so that was happening during the Omicron wave. The key sort of issues that were being discussed were resisting vaccine mandates and the supposed fraud of the 2020 election. So you're in a mega church. It's the middle of the Omicron wave. Nobody is wearing a mask. You cannot wear a mask in our crew in there or no one will talk to you. Wow. And so for me, honestly, 
I felt like, man, this is kind of dangerous, more dangerous than like a lot of these situations I've been in where there's a lot more people with guns just because like we're all we're all in this building breathing all over each other. And the people here, most of them haven't been vaccinated, like they don't mm-hmm. believe in this stuff, you know, and so the chances of getting sick here are high. <laughs> in, in, in the yeah. film, you definitely did not discuss the Petri dish factor. No, no. It was like, I was like, yeah, I would kind of rather be outside at a, like a, <laughs> at like a mil- militia rally or some Proud Boys event or something where people are angry and like have guns, but at least they're just not breathing on me all the time. <laughs> well, that, that, that was, that is news to me. And that puts it in a whole different space. Was he familiar with your work, with you and your team's work? I, I don't know if he was, you know, I'm not sure he had seen my previous films or my colleagues' previous films, you know, I'm not, I'm not totally sure. I, I'll tell you this, like I've met a lot of really noxious people mm-hmm. and like Patrick is like maybe more effective and more dangerous than many of the people that I've met, but he's like, feels like somebody who's less likely to kill you, you know? And so that was nice, like talking to him, you know? And like, I enjoyed, I, I like, I had a good time talking with him and being like having a view into his world. It was like compared to like in the spectrum of extremists and people with, I would say radical right-wing beliefs, like the, the election fraud conspiracy people are much easier to deal with than the white nationalists, than the Q people, than a lot of a lot of other. Oh, there's, there's certainly overlap. You know, there's overlap. But in his his scene is a little bit different and a little bit, you know, like you're scared of getting COVID, but you're less scared of like being like stabbed to death and having your skull stomped on, you know. Okay. But you set something up there. So then rather than dwell on on Patrick, because the body of the interviews and the things that he shares with you are there in the film, you allude to the people that are a little scarier to be around. It was really odd for me to see you sitting at picnic tables or, you know, sitting with arm's reach of some pretty sketchy people in American Insurrection, the previous Mm -hmm. documentary. And how many times you're sitting across from somebody, even like, uh, what's his name, Fincham, how many times you're sitting across from former Oath Keepers? To me, you're recognizable. I should think you're increasing, increasingly recognizable to, to people at that end of the spectrum. Are those interviews becoming harder to get? And exactly how uncomfortable are they? You know, it's a mixed bag. For a while, there were a lot of January 6 guys calling me from jail. And yeah. like, I made a film called American Insurrection. And like, January 6 dudes don't come across particularly well in that film, but they're calling me and Mm -hmm. like they want to chat. So uh, in some ways, like you'd be surprised that people really do want to talk. Other people, I'll tell you, you know, like we, we wanted to interview Brad Raffensperger, who is the sort of uh, establishment Republican governor, or excuse me, secretary of state in the state of Georgia. He's the guy that shut down Trump when he Told told Raffensperger, dude, just find me some more. Oh, I remember him, the infamous yeah. call. I remember the infamous phone call on tape. Yeah. So we wanted to interview him for this film, and he wouldn't speak to us. And so it's it's fascinating. There's like an establishment Republican who um, has been pretty lionized for doing the you know what seems to be the right thing in that moment. He doesn't want to talk. He won't do an interview. And then there's these other people who are pushing very lurid and florid conspiracy theories and saying, 
at times quite crazy things. And they're like, yeah, I'll totally talk. So it's it's a mixed bag. You ever worry about your own personal safety in any of these situations? I see you neck deep in some crowds. I have a hard time wrapping my head around some of the, in some of these films. One of the things that's happening now in the U.S. is at these big, intense demonstrations. Like everyone that does the work that I do is wearing body armor, and a lot of them are wearing helmets, and a lot of them are bringing, you know, goggles or um, something to protect them from tear gas or pepper spray. I mean, mm-hmm. and the people that they're most scared of are the right-wing protesters. It is a different world that we're living in. And so like, I would say last several years, yeah, a huge number of the people that I've interviewed were armed when I was interviewing them. There have been many, many circumstances where our crew was threatened, where our lives were in some level of jeopardy. I mean, to give you an example, the same day we filmed at Reawaken America in Arizona, we also went to the Trump rally that was out in Florence, Arizona, in the middle of the desert. And we had a local crew go out there with us. And they said, we will not go unless we go with a big group or we go with security. Because every time we cover one of these events, people threaten us and want to attack us because just because we're media and -hmm. because Trump has whipped up such a frenzy against members of the media that they are physically scared for their safety. And when you go to like, when you go up for this film, I was at multiple rallies that Trump spoke at. You go to these rallies and you've got a camera. A lot of people want to know who you're working for. And they have a lot of things to say when you tell them that you're working for PBS. And it's not like, I love Sesame street. It's not what they have. (laughs) On the other hand, they love this sort of ecosystem of like right-wing media and blogs and live streamers and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's, it's sketchy. I can't remember which time that we talked that you sort of talked about having just basically done murder for so long or having covered so much Mm. sort of death situation. How is the far right fatigue going? You're in, you're in oh, yeah. that now. It's a few, <laughs> few, few years straight of uh, covering that team. I have a fair amount of fatigue with that. On the one, and like to be clear, like what I was saying earlier is like I see like there to be two roles in this kind of work. And one role, like one prong of the reporting, is often to expose just outrageous conduct and at times criminal conduct by people on the far right. And we've done that work, like nine white supremacists have been locked up as a result of our of our reporting. But then there's another prong of it, which is to show viewers, this is your country. This is what people think. This is how they got to that place. And you should be prepared to deal with that. You know, and so I f- feel like you, we're trying to kind of do two different things. And that's why I do want to sit down with people and, and do these interviews. On the fatigue piece of it, so I may make a film about Buffalo, so if that happens, I'll be really right back into that. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, people that I interviewed on the election fraud film talked a lot about, there are people, public officials that talked to me a lot about great replacement theory and that, which ends up being the mantra of the, the alleged shooter right. in Buffalo and the mantra of most of these white supremacist killers uh, and of Tucker Carlson. Uh, so, I'm exhausted by it. I don't foresee good things for this country, honestly. I, I feel like I feel less 
optimistic about the fate of this country than the last time we talked. Adam, you just stole my closing question. That works. <laughs> Here, go on. I mean, here's here's why is that like I thought with January 6th that that was going to be the end of the Trump era. And I was wrong. I was super wrong. Um, I thought people would be chastened. I thought people would say like, oh, maybe we went too far. And like, we, you know, trying to overthrow the government's not a great thing. And maybe like storming Congress and killing our political enemies is not a good thing. And when you go to Trump rallies and you go and hang out in these spaces now, you see like, oh, no, that's not what happened. Actually, the number of people that believe the election was stolen is increasing. The lines between the extremist and the normie have completely blurred. Like what would have been an anti-government extremist back in the 90s in the Tim McVeigh day is now in many ways a mainstream Republican voter. And, right. you know, like the, that's what the, the surveys and the credible sociology say. And that's what you get when you go to the Trump rallies. And that's what makes me concerned, you know, going forward. I was going to step out of this thing asking you how your optimism to pessimism ratio is going. And it sounds to me like optimism has taken a really strong kick in the nuts. So <laughs> that's not going to be the final thing. But what occurs to me while you're talking just now, I'm curious about responsibility. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. There's a part of me that thinks when assignments come to you, that you will take them out of responsibility. Like I can see you shuffling off to Buffalo out of a sense of moral responsibility to report accurately on it and to provide as much as you can. But there is an, also an obligation to A.C. Thompson at some point and to your own well-being and to those who love you to think you'll reach a point in life where one will supersede the other or the latter will supersede the former. I think at some point though, there's going to be a, a shift in my work um, that'll get me focused on things that are maybe not quite so involved. I don't, I don't remember. I mean, I don't remember if we talked the last time, but you know, like my family was the victim in this federal criminal case because we were targeted by neo-Nazis and it was like a pretty intense disruptive thing. And those dudes wound up going to federal prison for that. I always hope we can get together, but the conversations, which were interviews and which were us, they blur. You know. Yeah, so I can I can definitely talk about that now. And I think 25 years of doing the work that I've done has led me to a place of thinking that there is a place for solutions journalism and there is a place for stories that discuss positive changes in society and potential solutions to the massive problems facing us. And I think in a lot of ways, when I look back to hanging out in the punk scene, one of the things that I liked about that scene is there's an intense critique of society, but there was also this intense desire to build and remediate the damage and to heal this planet. And, and I think like in my own work, it would be good to focus maybe more on um, potential fixes and good work that people are doing in addition to the horrendous things that people are doing. I think at some point you deserve an opportunity to cover the light. Yes. <laughs> Listen, that was an absolutely wonderful conversation and everything I hoped it would be. I am feeling that way about most interviews I do, but I want to share with you before I go. Coming up on 50 episodes of this show, 
And I would say these two conversations with you are both in top fives, even though we know each other and have known each other a long time. I'm always honored that you will sit down and do this. sir. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right, everybody. That is episode 49 of Dano Says So. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.